believers that we continually witness to her of your grace and your goodness and your forgiveness. And Father, we just thank you. And Lord, we lift up the sermon this morning and we lift up the message this morning. Lord, we ask that you would anoint our pastor. Father, we ask that you would Father, that you would energize his physical body, Lord God, and Father, that you would enter, and that you would anoint him, Lord Jesus, and embolden his spirit to proclaim your word this morning, Lord God, to proclaim your word, your truth this morning. And Father, we pray that you would cancel out the man, as I know he prays for himself, that you would cancel out the flesh, and that the word of God would come through loud and clear. And Lord, we ask that you would anoint, that not only would we anoint him, Lord God, but that you would open our ears and our hearts, that we would receive your word. And, Lord God, that we would submit to the Holy Spirit and let him take your word and apply it to our lives and change us this morning. Father, we praise you and we exalt you. And, Father, we pray that you are glorified in all that we say and all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Did I miss an announcement? Was there one more? I thought I missed one. Okay, okay. (laughs) All right, Pastor Phil. One, two. Okay, we're good. All right, so as you turn in there, Matthew 15, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we love you, Lord. You're a good God, and we're so grateful, Lord, that uh, maybe the only thing we have in common with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Daniel, and Peter, Paul, and John, maybe the only thing we have in common with them is that thousands of years later, we worship the same God. And so I pray that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be with us. And I pray that it would be his word that would be preached, not the faulty wisdom of man. And so I acknowledge, Lord, I'm a fallible man, and I've led people astray. And so I just pray, Lord, that you cancel the man that you would anoint me with your spirit so that I would proclaim your truth and that I would not lead anyone astray. I pray, Lord, that you give us the courage to test what is taught from this pulpit and what we hear throughout the week, that we test it with your word. And if it fails the test of your word, then we would reject it. Please open hearts and minds to receive truth from your word and empower us by your spirit and for your glory to apply these truths to our lives so we could be all that you called us to be. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've been going over it for the last few weeks. We'll probably spend a few more weeks on it before we get back into our um, survey of the Bible. We'll pick it up at First Timothy in a few weeks. But we've been going through the, the Trinity Bible Fellowship Statement of Faith. And... Uh, you know, as Christians, if we're going to stand up for what we believe, we got to actually know what it is that we believe. All right? And we got a lot of people call themselves Christians. They don't even know what it is that they believe, and how can you stand up for that? 
And uh, this is not grandpa. It's not grandpa's America anymore. Government doesn't love you. Uh, we're seeing the deification of the state. The government is trying to play God. And all of a sudden, the Christians, we've become the bad guys now. Okay? So if we're going to stand up for what we believe, we better know what we believe. And that's why I decided that we take some time to go over this. Now, we looked at the, the biblical doctrine of God. There's only one God, but this God exists as three eternal persons. He's the creator of the universe. He sustains us in existence. We talked about angels, demons, and Satan, and man and sin, and the doctrine of the Bible, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. God guided human authors to record his word without error, and it's profitable for the teaching of the redeemed, the teaching of the saved in doctrine as well as in daily living, okay? And so um, we looked at that last week. You know, every word of God is flawless. You know, we make mistakes all the time. It's hit and miss. Uh, but the word of God is God's truth, and, um, and it's without error. And so, therefore, it's the final authority upon which all other things are to be tested. Okay? And so I want to look at Matthew 15 and verse 3. Matthew 15 and verse 3. And uh, here the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, were criticizing Jesus and his disciples because they weren't obeying the technicalities um, of what they were adding to the law. You know, they were adding their oral traditions to God's law. And then in verse 3, Jesus, Jesus responded to them. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? This is something we Protestants got to understand. God is not opposed to all man-made traditions. There's a lot of man-made traditions that are actually good traditions, okay? But the question we have to ask is a particular tradition, is it a tradition that helps bring us closer to Jesus or does it push us further away? God is opposed to any traditions that cause us to transgress his perfect word, okay? And um, so, I mean, Jesus even celebrated in John chapter 10, I believe, he celebrated the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. That was not a God ordained feast that was in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay? But Jesus looked at it and said, that's a good human tradition that can help bring us closer to the Lord, celebrating the Maccabees, um, cleansing the temple when an evil Antichrist-type character, Antiochus Epiphanes, had slaughtered a pig in the temple and burnt Old Testament scriptures, but Jesus asked the Pharisees, and he asked us today, why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Do we have traditions here at Trinity Bible Fellowship that contradict the word of God? I don't know. I hope not. But we need to reflect upon that. Okay? See, what we're saying is that we're Christians. We're followers of Christ. This is our standard. The Bible is our standard. Okay? And... We don't want to build human traditions and habits that contradict the word of God. That's why Paul could say in Romans 3, 4, let God be true and every man a liar. Okay? We don't contradict the word of God. We're getting pressured more and more 
to make decisions, to hold views, and to do things that are contrary to God's word. We've got to have the courage of Joshua. We've got to say, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're just not going there. Now, we don't have time to look at it, but in Matthew 4, 1 to 11, God the Son became a man. He gets tempted by Satan, three temptations, and every one of those temptations, what does he do? He quotes the word of God. He quotes the scripture. Okay? That's why King David could say in Psalm 119:11, Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against thee. So in our time of temptation, what do we do? We quote the scripture. Okay? Now, there's two cases where God's word doesn't tell us to quote scripture. It tells us to flee. If you're tempted to immorality or idolatry, the Bible says flee. All other sins, you can stand on the word of God. Okay? Treasure God's word in your heart. But if God became a man, you know, I mean, look, Jesus is God incarnate. Anytime he opens his mouth, it's the word of God. Right? Every time he opens his mouth, it's the word of God. Yet he chose, chose to quote scripture three times when tempted by, by Satan. Do we hold the scriptures in that high of regard? Do we acknowledge the Bible as the final authority upon which all other things are to be tested? Um, and then in Matthew 19, 3 to 6, Jesus is asked about marriage and divorce. And the only thing I want to point out here is how Jesus responds in verses 4 to 6. He doesn't go to the rabbis and their tradition and their commentaries and their teachings uh, about marriage and divorce. Instead, he says this in verse 4, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall... Uh, leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. The, the only thing I want to point out here, okay, I mean, you got a lot of application here. A lot of application. I mean, in the beginning you made them male and female. What does that say about gay marriage? We got a lot of people who haven't studied the Bible. So Jesus never talked about gay marriage. Yeah, he did two, two ways. Right here he said marriage for a male and a female. Okay. And then, uh, and, and by the way, that's all the genders, male, female, period, okay? Um, uh, and then uh, the, the other thing, though, too, is that uh, Jesus goes back. He doesn't trust in the tradition of man. He goes right to the word of God. He goes right back to the beginning when God created them to respond to the question such as this. And so Jesus went right to the word of God um, for his teachings and his beliefs. And, uh, and look, look at Psalm 119. If you get a chance, read Psalm 119. It's the longest, longest book in the Bible, okay? And it's all about the Word of God. Sometimes it's called the law, the precepts, the statutes, the Word. Um, but in Psalm 119, 160... Verse 160, it says, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Okay? So as members of Trinity Bible Fellowship, we stand on the Bible. The Bible is the final authority. 
I'm not the final authority. Pastor John, Pastor Pat, Willis, Chris, we're not the final authority. The Bible is the final authority. If God has spoken, case closed. Okay? Now, there are some passages that are harder to interpret than other ones. But on the most important things that we face in life, the Bible is real clear that godly men and godly women agree what the Word of God has said. So the Bible is the inspired Word of God. God guided human authors to record His Word without error, and it is the final authority upon which all other things are to be tested. It doesn't mean the Bible is the only book that you read. You know, I think pastors ought to have big libraries. Of course, nowadays you can have a big library on your phone, okay? I'm the kind of guy, I like, a, I like physical books. I like highlighting, I like underlining, I like writing notes down and stuff. And um, so it usually moves, moves me out of a, each house with too big of a library, and I'm going to have to figure out how to cut it back at some time. It doesn't mean you, you only read the Bible. You read everything else that is good to read, but you test it. You even read the false satanic ideas of, of powerful people and test them with the Word of God, but you test all things with the Word of God, okay? And, uh, and so that's our stance uh, on the Bible. Now we move ahead to Jesus and then uh, the end times, Jesus and the end times. We remember when we went through... Uh, why God became a man in the Christmas season, and we talked about John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then you drop down to verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh. And I told you, when, when you're hurting, we got, by the way, we got people hurting in this church right now. We got three memorial services to do, um, we've got people having a hard time paying their mortgage, paying their bills. We've got people who are hurting. Whenever you're hurting, you just remember no matter how bad things get, the Word became flesh. Okay? The Word became flesh. It's going to be all right. It might not be all right in this lifetime. It might not be all right this year. But in the end, it's going to be all right because King Jesus is going to come back and make things right. Um, the Word became flesh. And so we know it's talking about Jesus. He's even mentioned in verse 17 and 18 of John chapter 1. And so the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus was always God and will always be God, the second person of the Trinity. Then at a point in time, he became a man. Titus 2.13 Paul's letter to Titus Chapter 2, in verse 13, Paul tells us that what should encourage us to live godly lives, he says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the, the way this is spelled out in the Greek is the Granville Sharp rule, where both God and Savior have to refer to Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And so even though in John 1, 1 it says the, the word was God, um, Paul is highlighting the fact that the word continues to be God. 
That's why we worship Jesus. Okay? I mean, he could call in, uh, was it 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 5, he could call Jesus the man, Christ Jesus. Because he is. He's fully man. But he can call him here our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he is God. Okay? Jesus always existed as God, the second person of the Trinity, because God is three persons, but at a point in time, he added a human nature without subtracting from his divine nature so that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Okay? It's called, what theologians call the hypostatic union. At Cross Point, I, I teach my ninth and tenth graders about that, the hypostatic union. There's other other biblical doctrines also that are our churches today just don't seem to be emphasizing. But Jesus was always God and will always be God, the second person of the Trinity. One of my favorite passages that teaches uh, the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, is Romans 10, verses 9 to 13. So let's take a look at that. Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10. Verses 9 to 13. Now, the word that's going to be used for Lord here is kurios in the Greek. And kurios does not always mean uh, God. Kurios can mean a human, uh, like a landlord, like a human ruler, okay? But in this context, I'm going to show you where it has to mean Yahweh. The most obvious way or the, the most common way to translate the word Yahweh into the New Testament by the Jews a couple hundred years before Jesus walked the earth when they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek it's called the Greek Septuagint the most common way to translate Yahweh the I am who I am the God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush the most common way was the word kurios and we're going to see that there's no two ways about it. When he calls Jesus Lord, he's calling him, when he calls him Koryas, he's calling him Yahweh. And remember, the I am who I am. You know, just apply that to yourself. For me, it's I am because Joe Fernandez, Angelina Minichino got together, had a baby boy named him Phil. I am because there's enough air for me to breathe, enough water for me to drink, enough food for me to eat. The list goes on and on. You can write thousands of pages why I am. When you look to God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who spoke to Moses from the burning bush, he says, I am who I am. I am pure, infinite, eternal existence. Okay? Everything else that exists comes from him. He had to create it. He alone is pure, infinite, eternal existence, the I am who I am. So look at Romans 10, starting at verse 9. Paul says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, some, would trans some translate that, that Jesus is Lord. Either way in the Greek, it's the same. The is isn't there. We usually insert it in the English. But this is what you had to say if you didn't want to get in trouble with Rome. You had to say Caesar is Lord. And then you had to burn incense uh, to the Roman gods. Well, the Jews refused to say Caesar is Lord. They said Yahweh is Lord. 
and they ended up getting an exemption because they complained so much they got a religious exemption there. And then um, the Christians, you know, say, the Romans would say, say Caesar is Lord. They say, no, Jesus is Lord. Well, they're trying to claim that Caesar is a deity. So right there, the context is that of uh, acknowledging Jesus' deity, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus or Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord over all, okay, now it's like Lord over all, boy, that sounds like God there, the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. And then he says this, still talking about Jesus as the Lord in verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, why is that important? Because that quotation from the Old Testament, Lord is in all capital letters. You go back to Joel chapter 2, verse 32. We don't have time to look at it. Uh, but Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And if you ever read the beginnings of your Bibles in the preface, they explain to you whenever you see that, they're translating Yahweh. Okay? And so Paul quotes an Old Testament passage about Yahweh and applies it to Jesus. In other words, Paul is calling Jesus Yahweh. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the Bible consistently teaches that Jesus always existed as God, the second person of the Trinity. Throughout all eternity, he existed as fully God. But at a point in time, he added a human nature without subtracting from his divine nature he added a human nature by becoming a man, okay? And um, when Jesus didn't know the day or the hour of his return, that's in his human nature. In his divine nature, he's all-knowing. Now, he chose not to use his divine powers for his own advantage while on earth. He humbled himself and became a servant and didn't tap into his divine powers. He relied upon the Father and the Holy Spirit to empower him. Uh, once he arrived, that's called the doctrine of the kenosis, that Jesus humbled himself and veiled his glory by becoming a man. He did not use certain divine powers to his advantage while on earth. Now, when he rose from the dead, all bets are off. Okay? All bets are off. Now, still in Jesus' human nature, where is he? He's at the Father's right hand. With a human body, he can't be in two places at the same time. But in his divine nature, he's here right now. His divine nature, he indwells us right now, as does the Father and the Holy Spirit. You know, this is why King David could say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We, we walk with Jesus. We have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? It's... um. You know, again, Christianity is not a list of rules and regulations, okay? It's a personal love-trust relationship in the Lord Jesus who empowers us to obey God from the heart, to love God with everything we got, to love our neighbors as ourselves, okay? Uh, through faith and love, trusting God and loving God and loving others, God empowers us 
to live that obedient life. So instead of saying, gee, what's, what's right, what's wrong, what we should ask is, where this morning, you wake up in the morning, where does Jesus want me to go? What does Jesus want me to say? What does Jesus want me to do? When you look at other people, you wake up in the morning, do you study God's word devotionally? Do you start out in prayer? Because if you do, God will fill you with his Holy Spirit. It'll become natural to walk in the supernatural. But Jesus is in his divine nature is omnipresent. Are you walking with Jesus? Do you see other people through the eyes of Jesus? Okay? I used to only like kind of like one type of people on the planet Earth, and they were always like people like me, you know? I really, really preferred the Italians, to be honest with you. And uh, although, they, although they got on my nerves, but, uh, but when you see people through the eyes of Jesus, okay, even little, even, even little people, uh, the little stinky ones, you know, that every time you shake hands with them, you get some goo on your hands. You have no idea what it is. Um, God created them. And my God sent his son to die for them. So who are we to look down upon them? And, um, and so Christianity is that personal love, trust, relationship with the Lord Jesus and with his word. You know, I give my students the threefold response. Once you recognize what God has done, God the Son became a man, died on the cross for your sins, then you need to admit you're a sinner and you cannot save yourself, you need to believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Once you do that, you're saved. Then we need to commit to Jesus and his word for daily living, okay? Um, you got to walk with Jesus. That's why I say commit to Jesus. You got to walk with Jesus, okay? It's a personal love, trust relationship. If I don't say commit to Jesus, you might think, okay, the Christianity is just rules and regulations found in the Bible. So I say, no, commit to Jesus. However, you might be committing to, quote, unquote, Jesus. How do you know it's the true Jesus of the Bible? Unless you test it with the word of God. Jesus of Nazareth will never lead you, okay, contrary to his word. And, um, um, but it's a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, 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 it bothers me when people ask, where's Jesus now? Because, I mean, the... Which answer do you want? His human nature is at the Father's right hand. In his divine nature, he's right here right now. There's a lot of powerful people. They don't think he's here right now. And they certainly don't think he's at the right hand, the ultimate position of authority in the universe. There's a lot of powerful people pushing around God's people. Okay? And um, don't respect King Jesus. Well, King Jesus is here right now, and he's also at the Father's right hand, the ultimate position of authority in the universe, <clears throat> and the Bible teaches that he is coming back. Okay, now, the Bible tells us Jesus was always God, will always be God, the second person of the Trinity, but that he added a human nature when he became a man by being born to a virgin, you know? And, you know, sometimes I get atheists say, well, how could, how could a man be born of a virgin? It's like, well, duh, how could God create the universe? I don't know how he created the universe. Uh, I don't know how God the Son became a man. I don't know how he's born of a virgin. But if he's God, if he created create the whole universe, miracles is like 
that's, that's easy stuff for them, okay? And so we accept what the Bible says in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel that Jesus became a man by being born to a virgin. He lived a sinless and a miraculous life. He performed miracles and committed no sin. He obeyed the law, which we could not obey. God demands perfect righteousness, okay? We all fall short. God commands perfect righteousness. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law in our place, and then he took our punishment because we don't perfectly obey the law. Remember, all sin, even the smallest sin, is rebellion against the ultimately worthy being, God. So the, the problem isn't how big is your sin. The problem is how big is the one you offended? Oh, he's the all-powerful God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, then you're in trouble. But there's going to be a substitute sacrifice. The substitute sacrifice has to be what? Ultimately worthy. The substitute sacrifice had to be God to be worthy enough to cover our sin, but had to become a man to represent man and to also be able to die. God as God can't die. And, um, and so in order to be sacrificed for our sins, uh, God the Son became a man and took perfectly obeyed the law and then took our punishment for us when he died uh, on the cross as a substitute sacrifice for our sins. And then he bodily rose from the dead to conquer death for us. And uh, so let's look at just a few passages here. John chapter 1 and verse 14. We quoted the first part of that a little earlier. John chapter 1 and verse 14. It's about Jesus adding a human nature. And the word became flesh. So we already told that the word was God. And then the word became flesh. That's the incarnation. God the Son became a man. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, and it's, it's um, dwelt among us. It's like literally it's like he pitched his tent among us. He really gets into like the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus is going to reign on earth uh, for a thousand years. And, and, um, and so John, was he just a fisherman? He was just a teenager. And then decades later, he could pen the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, some of the most profound and beautiful things ever written in the history of mankind. And uh, he's like, where, where did this guy learn this stuff? You know, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He rested his head on Jesus' shoulder when they ate. And, um, you know, what, what would you do if, if Jesus were here right now? I don't know. I mean, it's just like a lot of different responses we could have. Certainly bowing before him is appropriate. Uh, but I think John chose the best thing. He, God became a man. He's sitting down next to me. So I'm just going to rest my head on his shoulder. And as John could tell us, he said, you know what? God became a man. And he pitched his tent among us. He dwelt among us. You know, yeah, we beheld his glory because he was the only begotten of the Father 
but he pitched his tent. I'm all, you know, John could say, man, he broke bread with us. He hung out with us. He corrected us when we needed it. James and brother John, sons of thunder, they needed some correction. But God became a man, and he loved on this, this group of guys called the apostles, and he loved others, and he healed them. And, you know, and it's, it's just like, man, you just think, John, going through this, God became a man, and John, as a teenager, rested his head on his shoulder. You know, sometimes when we talk with people, we meet with people. They might not have grown up in a Christian home, okay? They might know nothing about Jesus. For some people, the only glimpse of Jesus they might ever have is their encounter with you. And every encounter we have is what? It's a divine encounter, okay? And so there's got to be less of us and more of Jesus. But God became a man. Matthew 1, 18 to 25 talks about the fact that uh, Jesus was born um, of a virgin, the Virgin Mary, Matthew 1, 18 to 25. And, um, and this fulfilled, we just started verse 23, it fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 7, 14. So Matthew 1, 23 to 25, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, because he was, you know, I, he was thinking she's pregnant. You know, the, the Richard Dawkins, the atheist, is always saying that the only reason why Christians believed in miracles is because they were pre-scientific. They didn't have enough training in modern science to know that you don't believe in this stuff. That's, that's baloney, okay? Um... Matt, uh, Joseph knew enough about science to know where babies come from. And he knows if he sees a pregnant lady and he's engaged to that pregnant lady and if he didn't have relations with her, he's, he knew enough about science to where he thought, okay, I think I know where this baby's from. So it took an angel in a dream to tell him, no, you got this one wrong. This is the exception. And God calls those exceptions miracles. And the virgin birth of our Lord is one of the greatest, most beautiful miracles that ever occurred. But you can imagine the ridicule that Joseph would have received and Mary back then. And, um, um, but, yeah, I just wrote a forward to a book, a friend of mine, where he's basically arguing that even before Matthew was chosen to be in Jesus' inner circle, he was already one of his disciples, and he was taking notes. He probably got these birth accounts from Joseph, okay? Uh, so word was out. Everybody knew that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. But the word was out that Joseph and Mary were claiming that Jesus was born to a virgin, okay? And, um, and so I think Matthew got a lot of his information in chapters 1 and 2 from Joseph while Joseph was still alive. There must have been speculation about Jesus even growing up that um, this kid could be the Messiah. 
and then he goes public uh, when he gets baptized uh, by John the Baptist at age 30. Uh, but here, Jesus was born um, of a virgin. Uh, look at Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. After talking about the fact that Jesus would be born to the virgin named Mary, verse 35. Um, uh, by the way, too, just uh, that last verse in Matthew 1 also said that Joseph kept Mary a virgin until Jesus was born. Okay, so that means after Jesus was born, they resumed uh, uh, a natural, normal marital relationship. So, so we don't agree with our, our Roman Catholic friends on that, that she was a virgin throughout her, own li- her whole life. She wouldn't have been a good wife if she was. Okay, Luke 1, 35, then Mary, uh, uh, no, 35, then the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is born, who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So technically... Jesus always existed as God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word. He really wasn't the Son of God until he became a man. The Son of God actually means God become a man. It's really what it comes down to. So um, it's okay. It's, it's like it's okay to say that um, uh, Muhammad Ali knocked, uh, defeated Sonny Liston to win the heavyweight championship. It's okay to say that. But technically, his name was Cassius Clay at the time. He didn't change his name to Muhammad Ali till later. And so it's okay to say that the Son of God exists throughout all eternity. But technically, yeah, he exists throughout all eternity, but he wasn't known as the Son of God until he was conceived in the womb of Mary. Okay? But that gets, gets into a whole, a whole other topic there. But I, I believe the, the Son of God meant he's God the Son. Okay, um, the only persons who are called sons of God uh, in the Bible are angelic beings who are created directly by God. And then Luke, when he gives his gene- genealogy in Luke chapter 3, he traces it all the way back to Adam. And then he says, you know, so he's saying like um, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. How could Adam be called the son of God? Because he came directly from God. But when a human shows up thousands of years later and claims to be the son of God, he's claiming to come directly from God. He's actually claiming uh, equality uh, with God. That's why just look at John 5, 17 to 18, that the Jews wanted to stone him, uh, not only because he was breaking their Sabbath laws, their additions to the Sabbath law, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, okay? And um, uh, look at Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. 
In fact, we'll read 15 and 16 here. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because of that, he says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may, may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In our time of need, we can boldly go into the throne room of God. Why? Because we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. You know, imminence and transcendence are two big things that philosophers of religion talk about. Imminence, we have this need for an imminent close God. Okay? Transcendence, there's also this need for a far away God who is far above us. Okay? And... Um, but when you look at the world's religions, when you look at the ancient pagan religions, their gods were imminent. They were so close to us, the gods of Greek and Roman mythology, they were so close to us that for all practical purposes, they were just like us. And when you're imminent, gods that are imminent could feel our pain. And why could they feel our pain? Well, they were just as dysfunctional as we are. Okay. So they're close enough to feel our pain, but not close enough to deliver us from our pain. Then you get like, uh, like gods like the god of Hinduism that is so transcendent, so other than us, so far away, that God cannot feel our pain. But in Christianity, you have the best balance of both. How transcendent is God? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God who created the universe. He's the God who parted the Red Sea to save his people and then close up the waters and wipe out the most powerful military on the planet Earth. Uh, God is the infinite I am who I am, the all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere present, God of creation. And he's the God of creation, but he's also imminent. He's the God of redemption. How close is he? He is so close. I mean, it, it just amazes me. We got this transcendent God, not like the fake gods. You know, Francis Schaeffer used to say that the, the gods of Greek and Roman mythology they're not real. They're not true divinity. They're amplified humanity. You know? They're just like superhumans, made up superhumans. But the God of Christianity is true divinity, true deity, truly God, this all-powerful God. Yet who else can believe in the concept of an all-powerful God and then say, yeah, but you know what? When I'm lonely... I know that my God knows what loneliness is. But my God is so imminent, he became one of us. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be beaten. And he knows what it's like to die. And that's why the author of Hebrews is like, 
We do not have a high priest, he's talking about Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points, was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Um, don't ever tell Jesus, Jesus, you don't know what I'm going through. Okay? Now, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, even before God the Son became a man, God had all knowledge. He knows, but he didn't know it experientially. Okay? God knows everything, but the way God knew it was just because God innately knows everything. But when God the Son became a man, he also, in his human nature, had the experiences so that he knew by experience what it's like to be alone. What it's like to be ridiculed. Yeah, I don't, I don't like being ridiculed. I was ridiculed for lots of reasons back in Jersey. Grew up with the Italians. My last name doesn't sound Italian, okay? Because my mother's Italian. So I got made fun of that. I don't know if you noticed, I'm not the tallest guy in the world. So I got made fun of for that, you know. And uh, I know what it's like to be ridiculed. I'm sure you know what it's like to be ridiculed. But I worship a God. I didn't even know God when I was a little guy, half Portuguese, half Italian, growing up back in Jersey. I didn't even know him. But I know he was saying to me, he was whispering, I just wasn't listening. And they called me, my parents named me Philip. That was another reason. I grew up with Rocco's and Mario's and Vinny's, and here comes Philip. It's like, what is this, a British prince? So that'll get you in a few fights right there. But, but I could just see God whispering to me at that point. It's okay, Philip. It's okay, little guy. Shortest in your class. It's all right. It's going to be okay. I know what it's like to be ridiculed. The Lord Jesus became one of us. You know, his own people rejected him. The world rejected him. Ridiculed by Jews and Gentiles alike. Whenever you're hurting, just know that, hey, yes, Jesus... Is, uh, is God, he's always going to be God, but he also added to human nature, he became one of us. He knows what it's like to suffer, okay? And he's also a miracle-working God. Mark 1, verse 34. Mark chapter 1, verse 34. This is a good summary verse of some of the miracles Jesus performed. It says, Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. That's pretty interesting, too. The demons knew who he was, and he didn't want them telling people. So Jesus wants us to preach the truth, but he wants, he wants people to preach the truth who practice what they preach. Okay? He doesn't want the enemy preaching it. But here he performed many miracles. These miracles were important. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, why did he perform miracles? One, to prove his claims to be God, Savior, and Messiah were true. Two, so that God would be glorified. Um, 
But number three, sometimes I think he just performed miracles. You know why? Because he cared for people. He saw a man born blind. He said, God's going to be glorified, but I don't. I want this guy to see. Okay? These miracles were important. John the Baptist started having doubts. Why? Because the Jews were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah who was going to militarily conquer the Romans and deliver the Jews from servitude to the pagans. And um, even John the Baptist had that. I don't know how, because he, he, he would say of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So somehow, some way, even John the Baptist had a hard time reconciling that with man. They're going to put me to death. I told everybody he was the Messiah, because when we baptized him, he came out of the water. The Holy Spirit came down on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased you got all three persons of the Trinity there. So John the Baptist said, okay, this is a no-brainer. God told me Holy Spirit's going to come down on, on the Messiah like a dove. This is him. He's the one. So he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Guess what? Jesus didn't build an army. And John the Baptist is waiting to be executed, and he's like, when's he going to start building an army? So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? Or should we hope for another? And how did Jesus answer him? He knew that John the Baptist loved the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah even predicts John the Baptist, Isaiah 40, verse 3. And so Jesus quoted from it that the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk. He basically telling us in John, there's never going to be a greater one than me. I'm him. I'm the Messiah. My miracles prove that I'm the Messiah. And, um, um, and so he performed uh, miracles, lived a sinless life. It was without sin. And, um, and in Matthew 11, 2 to 6, Yeah, this is the exact passage there. John the Baptist said, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Well, that was sad, that's sad. If you, if you, ever, you, ever, you ever doubt your faith? And you feel like, man, am I even a Christian? Because I'm starting to doubt Jesus, you know? You might have doubts and stuff. Let me tell you, even John, the, you're in good company. Even John the Baptist had doubts, Okay. It's what you do with your doubts that matters, okay? When you doubt, when you have questions, do you look for answers? Okay? Also, do you, like Job, do you know enough about God's goodness to realize you were wrong to question God when bad things happen to you, okay? So everybody doubts. To be human is to doubt, okay? So if you have doubts, just just. Look for the, the truth. Look for the right answers. Just trust in God. John the Baptist, though, he doubted. Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you see, you hear and see. And then he quotes from Isaiah, the blind see and the lame walk. 
The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Okay? You know, we're coming to a day and age. Jesus talks about the end times. If these aren't the end times, I don't know what when it's going to be. But I think just in case, we need to look for the blessed hope. We need to live day by day. But um, Jesus said at the point he comes back, um, Christians will be hated in all nations because of Jesus. The Jews will be hated in all nations. All nations are going to invade Israel. Zechariah 14, and that's when Jesus comes back. But are we offended by Jesus? And I think I'm going to just close with that. Are we offended by Jesus? You know, he is, we believe, he is God, and he is Savior, and he became a man. He died on the cross for our sins, bodily rose from the dead to conquer death for us. But are you offended by him? Are you offended by the Lord Jesus? Um, Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel. Okay? We can, I, don't, so I don't care what this government, what this culture says about Jesus, how they clamp down on us, how they try to shut us up. Okay? I don't care how bad we look in the media. We can never, ever be ashamed um, of King Jesus. Um, Look at just 2 Timothy. We'll close with this. And I'll give you that one illustration I always give about being ashamed or not. 2 Timothy 1.12. And, um, you know, I remember that, you know, city kids, they used to do weird stuff. Went to St. Al's Catholic Grammar School, 8th grade. And so they made us do a fundraiser, washing cars, to raise support just, just for us to be traumatized. They were going to send us to a dude ranch in upstate New York, and nobody told us how, how big horses really are in real life. So, you know, there we are working all day, getting all wet and all cold. And, and uh, just, to, you know, when, I used to, when we finally went to that dude ranch, they sat me on top of a horse. They told me, if he's not going where you want me to do, they told me what to do, to kick him or something. I'm like, like, dude, this horse goes wherever he wants to go, man. He's, I ain't messing with this thing. And uh, um, but we going through that car wash. It was probably like eight hours, and I was tired. Everybody was tired. And we started to gather up the stuff, and all of a sudden somebody said, oh, look, it's one more car, the last car. And we could see the car off in the distance, and I got closer and closer. Everybody started laughing. And say, oh, that car's disgusting. That car's never been washed. It turned out to be a true statement. And, uh, and uh, so they're all laughing that this filthy car is going to come pulling up. And I was laughing right there with them until I got a closer look and realized it was my dad's car. <laughs> and so... Uh, so then I got to make the choice. Am I going to be cool and laugh with my friends? Or am I going to acknowledge, no, that's the greatest man I ever met face to face on planet Earth. And um, you can laugh at him all you want. I haven't seen him all day. I miss my dad. 
and I'm not going to be ashamed. There are powerful people out there that want you to be ashamed of Jesus. You guys say, I'm never, ever, ever going to be ashamed or offended because of King Jesus. You can laugh at me all you want. What was that old Larry Norman song? His friends thought he was just going through a fad, and he said, here I am, still preaching, brother. Here I am, still preaching, sister. Here I am, still preaching Jesus just the same. Hopefully we could say that, and we could say with Paul, I fought the good fight, I finished my course, I kept the faith. But 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says this. He, Paul's, you know, he's on death row. He's going to die. He said, for this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Why is he not ashamed? For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what I have committed to him until that day. So next week, we'll pick it up in our study about King Jesus. But are you ashamed? Are you offended by Jesus? You won't be offended if you know him. You personally know him. And if you're convinced that he is able to guard what you've entrusted to him until that day when he takes his stand upon the earth to make things right. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, I just, we just thank you, Lord, for your written word, but we thank you for your living word that you sent uh, your son to become a man, to become one of us, to break bread with us, to walk with us, to talk with us, and then to eventually suffer and die for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you raised him from the dead to conquer death, man's greatest enemy, to conquer death for us. And we long for the day when your son, King Jesus, returns to make things right upon the earth. But I pray, Lord, that none of us here and no true believers throughout the world would ever, ever, ever be offended because of Jesus, would never be ashamed of Jesus because we know whom we have believed in and we are convinced that he is able to protect us until that day when he returns in glory to take his stand upon the earth and make things right. The King Jesus, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to him be all the glory in the church. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.